Welcome again to Home Gastronomics. Let's bring the professional chef into your home kitchen in whole new ways. We're trying a little less formal format this episode, and we've got a whole bunch of topics to talk about. Everything having to do with food of some kind, and still how you can use professional techniques in your home. We're keeping some of the other features, like the word of the day, and questions, so be sure to send those questions in. Remember, you can participate in the show by emailing us or messaging us through our website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you're enjoying the show, consider becoming a patron with a small monthly donation. As always, we'll have all the links and important info in the show notes for you to click on. Thanks, and enjoy. So I've been working on this episode since right after Thanksgiving and sharing my Thanksgiving experience. I'm happy that we're able to get it out just before Christmas. Maybe it'll help some of you guys with Christmas. One of the really cool things with Thanksgiving, I always do a turkey on Thanksgiving, just my family tradition. Uh, I don't have family that lives in town local to me anymore. and. This year, we decided to have a bunch of friends over that are close like family. We got about a 20-pound turkey. And looking at it, I'm like, man, this is going to take five, six hours to cook. I don't want to be in, you know, suffering that long and this, that, the other. You know, it's I'm going to have to wake up early, start cooking it and preparing it and everything else. So I was like, well, what else can I do? And instead of cooking this whole turkey, because the problems that you see cooking a whole turkey is that the dark meat cooks at a different rate than the light meat, especially with a whole turkey. You know, you set the turkey on its back, the light meat is super exposed. It's right up top, close to the heat in the oven. The dark meat is covered up by the light meat. So it's going to take longer for that dark meat to cook. So when you're cooking a whole turkey, by the time that the dark meat is cooked, the light meat, the breast, is all dried out sawdust. But if you take it out when the breast is perfect, well, now the the dark meat, the leg and thigh, which a lot of people like, isn't cooked yet. And you could really get someone sick by having undercooked poultry. So I broke it down. Break it down the same way you break down a chicken. We have that video on YouTube. We talked about that. I showed you how to do that. Take the breast off to a nice nice boneless breast. I left the wing attached. So you have that there. And then broke down the leg and thigh into leg and thigh quarters and cooked it that way. And then I have this, the turkey carcass that is perfect. Now I can make stock with this and I'm going to add it to a couple chicken carcasses that I have. Going to have a great stock base. And what's nice is I did that the night before Thanksgiving. I broke the turkey down, had it all set up. I seasoned it and let it sit overnight. Let the seasoning really get deep into the turkey and make a fantastic meat. I was very happy with it, with how it turned out. And some of my guests were, were skeptical. You know, it's, oh, you have to cook the whole bird and this and that, the other. And by the end of the night, 
end of the meal, they were like, that's the best damn turkey that I've ever had. So really, you want to think about that. It's kind of thinking outside the box. There's other benefits to it, too. A lot of people like the light meat, the breast meat. That's that's where it's at, you know? So when you break it down, you have a nice breast that's easy to carve. Instead of trying to carve it on the turkey, you have a nice breast that's easy to carve. And even better, you're carving against the grain of the meat, of the muscle, which makes it just melt in your mouth. And that's really what you're shooting for. You're shooting for a good meat that's the right temperature. It's not dry. It's moist, tender, and it's easy to work with. Who wants to sit there and fight with trying to carve a turkey or fight with trying to to do anything when you're cooking, especially on a holiday? Holidays when you want to relax, watch your football game, Thanksgiving, you want to watch the Macy's parade, whatever it is that you that you do. Play board games, whatever it is that you do on your holidays. That's what a holiday is for. Holiday is not for stressing in the kitchen or anything like that. So why why not do the easiest thing that you can to make your life easier? When we broke it down, instead of taking five, six hours to cook, this turkey was done in about two, two and a half hours. I cut the cooking time in half. It allowed me to spend time with my friends, talk with them, and it allowed me to work on other things. Just think about the space that it takes up. You're cooking a whole turkey. That takes up the whole oven, almost. Breaking it down, it laid flatter. I had it on one shelf in the oven, and I had two other shelves that I could cook other stuff on, a green bean casserole, stuffing, whatever else that I was cooking. So it made it very easy. On top of that, the next thing we're going to talk about is more thinking outside the box. So when the turkey was done cooking, what am I going to do with it? First, I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to let it rest. Let all the juices Soak back into the muscle as the muscle relaxes and it gets juicy again. I I don't want the juices. I don't want to carve it and then the juices run all over the place. And now I still have dry turkey, even though it's cooked right. So you let it rest. And then I would put it in a hot box. We would do that at work. You know, put it in a hot box until we're ready to serve it. You know, we're, we're serving a thousand guests for Thanksgiving. So we're not going to make a turkey one at a time, especially when it's taken two hours, two and a half hours to cook. We're going to make, you know, 20 turkeys. And then we're not going to serve 20 turkeys at once. So we'll put them in a hot box to hold it at the right temperature for that half an hour to an hour that it takes us to go through those 20 turkeys. So at home, you don't really have a hot box. Or do you? I've done it before. I don't know if I've said it to everyone, but an oven makes a great hot box. You can turn that oven down really low, 180, 200 degrees, still keeps it hot. 
you want to be careful. 200, much higher, you're starting to slowly cook it still. So it will dry out fast. But if you get it down to about 170, 180 degrees, that's a hot box temperature right there. That's something that you can store food at and maintain the temperature really well. On Thanksgiving or on Christmas coming up, though, you've got so many things going into that oven that you need to keep the oven working. You can't drop the temperature to hold the turkey while you're trying to get all of your other items cooked. So what else do we have? On my back porch, I've got a barbecue grill. And it worked really great. I tried it out to make sure that it was going to work. So this is where I experiment and you benefit from it. My barbecue grill has five burners on it. So the first thing is you do want a little bit larger barbecue grill that has multiple burners. If you've only got one burner, you're getting more direct heat than side heat. So I only turned on one of the burners on the far end of the grill and I turned it on its lowest setting. Took my pan, have the turkey in the pan. I wrapped it up, aluminum foil. I don't want the plastic wrap to melt in the grill. You know, in a hot box, it'd be okay. In the grill where it's actually got fire, I'd worry about it. Um, wrap it up and I throw it on the other side of the grill. My grill has a thermometer on the outside, monitors the temperature inside, held it at a consistent 180 below 200 degrees. It worked great. So think about that. Think about different ways that you can do something like that. Even if you have, if you have a, a catering thing that you've done, you, you did a, a party before and you bought one of those steam table things or you bought a sterno fuel thing. You can do that too. It keeps that warm without continuing to cook it. You just want to make sure that you wrap the pan over to keep the moisture inside, and that's going to keep your meat nice and moist. The last topic that I want to talk about is something that I've started doing. Um, I have two dogs. I love my dogs. They're, they're great. They're pains in the butt, but they're great. They're my children. And if you have pets, dogs or cats, whatever kind of pets you have, you kind of realize going to the pet store and the, and the pet food store and everything. Pet food is expensive. When we get dry food and I get a 30 pound bag of dry food and it costs me 60 bucks and I get a can of dog food and it, it costs me three bucks per can of dog food, you know, and this is, Obviously, there's cheaper foods than that, but I, I want to feed my dog something good, something healthy, and I've done research into it as to what is a good quality pet food. So, you know, it's really is worth it. You don't want to feed feed your pets trash. You don't want to eat trash. They don't want to eat trash. So it's worth getting a good dog food, but it's expensive. So I looked and I tried to figure out what's a better way of doing this. And I decided that I was going to start making 
my own dog food at home. And for the most part, dogs and can eat the exact same stuff that we eat. I don't own cats, so I'm not going to speak for cats. But I'm pretty sure they could also. Do some research. I did the research on dogs as to what dogs can eat, what dogs can't eat. Dogs can't eat onions. Uh, but they can eat carrots. They can eat celery. They can eat apples. You know, just like us. Um, so why not feed them that? If it's good enough for us, isn't it good enough for them? And it's probably a lot less expensive. I found it was considerably less expensive. I'd go to the store and I'd buy two packages of thighs and the big box store, you know, the club stores and stuff like that. Buy two packages of chicken thighs. And each package was like five bucks. You know, we're talking like a a seven, eight pound package of chicken thighs for five bucks. That's really inexpensive. And I'd bring it home, I'd buy a bag of carrots and you know, throw the carrots in with the chicken and I'd simmer it for a little while, make a nice broth, and I'd here's one of my dogs now. I'd make a nice broth out of it and simmer it and the the chicken would just fall apart. When it's all done, a couple hours, I'd pull the chicken out, let it cool down some. I'd take the broth off the same way that I do a stock, you know, skim the fat off of it and then start ladling the the broth into little jugs, little Tupperware containers and set that aside, cool it down, put it in the fridge. And then I'd pull the chicken off the bones and pull all the meat, set, break it up into little pieces. I'd keep the carrots, throw the carrots in, and I'd throw them into a big Tupperware bowl. All the chicken, all the carrots into a big Tupperware bowl. And I'd put that in the fridge and cool that down and, and save that. So for about $15, which would be seven cans of food, five to seven cans of food. I'm, and that would last, last us about two weeks. You know, we don't feed every day. We feed can every, you know, every other day, but that would last us about two weeks with one dog. And I have two for about the same price as that. I'm feeding both of my dogs for almost a month. And it's better food for them. It doesn't have, if you ever read the label on dog food, it's like meal and cornmeal and filler this and filler that. It's really not great stuff. Yeah, it's, and I don't mean to bash on any of the, any of the dog food brands out there, but a lot of it, you know, you look at some dog food reviews and they'll even say, this is not the most healthy stuff that's out there. You know, it's, it's not bad, but it's not the best. Even some of the best ones that are out there are really good, but they've still got some fillers in there that they're not straight food. And that's what, like I said, if it's good enough for you, why isn't it good enough for them? Or if it's good enough for them, why isn't it good enough for you? You know, you 
why not feed your pets the same thing you're eating? And I don't mean, you know, feed them from the table or scrape the plates or anything like that. I mean, you could scrape the plates. Just watch what you're feeding them. And you end up with a healthier, happier pet. It it makes so much sense and it saves so much money. And on top of that, I'll tell you, if this is something you want to do and you want tips, drop me a line, shoot me an email, whatever. I will send you, I actually typed up and I've got it hanging in my cabinet, a list of all the foods dogs can eat and all the foods dogs can't eat. Shoot me a message. I will send that to you. It is such a great resource. And if you're being creative and cooking for for your family, for your kids, for your spouse, whoever you're cooking for, why not be creative and cook for them too? And they're getting the same benefit of you being a home chef as your family and your friends are. Anyways, I digress. Food for thought, thinking outside the box. Enjoy your Christmas, enjoy your holidays, whatever holiday you separate. Have a happy new year, and we'll see you in 2020. Our word today is clarified butter. This is also called drawn butter. It's unsalted butter that has been slowly melted, evaporating most of the water and separating the milk solids. Since butter is made up of three things, fat, water, and milk solids, clarifying it gives you a pure fat that has a much higher smoke point than whole butter and is better for cooking. In addition, Since the milk solids have been removed, the clarified butter does not go rancid as fast and it does not burn in the same way that the milk solids do with whole butter. Real quick on how to make clarified butter. What I've found is best is using what's called a double boiler. You can do a pot inside a pot or they have specific double boilers that are out there. You can even do like a metal mixing bowl over a pot, basically something that's going to more control the heat that's being delivered to the butter so you don't burn it while you're trying to clarify it. You put the butter in the top of your double boiler with some water in the bottom and let it go. It'll start to melt. Keep letting it go. If you just take it off once it's melted, all you have is melted butter. But if you let it go a little bit longer, it will start to separate and layer into the milk solids on top, the pure fat in the middle, and all of the water that's left over that hasn't evaporated will soak to the bottom. If you keep letting it go, that water will evaporate more so you have less to worry about. The ideal is to remove all of the water and all of the milk solids from your clarified butter. Whatever water is left, you can still remove if there is any. Once you've got it melted and clarified, you want to take a small spoon or a ladle or something that you can lightly dip into the 
melted butter just to get all of those milk solids and foam and stuff like that off of the top. Once you get all of the scum removed and you can see the nice clarified butter, you're good to go. You can start pouring it into a container or clean that ladle and start ladling it into the container. If you see that you have a lot of water left on the bottom, ladling it is probably going to be the best way. If you do start to pour, you just want to watch it so that you don't get a lot of water into your clarified butter. It will still separate, but it makes it difficult sometimes when you're trying to use it. If you have a lot of water in your clarified butter and you throw it in the pan, it's going to pop and sizzle and everything because that's what water does. Otherwise, once you have that, I usually store it in the fridge just to extend the life even longer, but you can store it on the countertop. What I do when I'm storing it in the fridge is I'll pull it out to let it soften. Sometimes I might even pop it in the microwave for like 10-15 seconds just to get it to melt again and be liquid. The fat will become solid sitting on the counter or sitting in the refrigerator. It becomes almost like a thick ketchup-like consistency which you can still use real easily. I have a squirt bottle. You can pick up squirt bottles real easily at Walmart or or a grocery store or whatever that you pour the clarified butter into, and then you just squirt it into your pan that you're going to be using. Works great. Like I said, it's not going to burn in the same way. If you just put butter into a pan, those milk solids are going to start to burn through the Maillard effect. And if you don't watch it, they will burn, burn, and really give a nasty flavor to the food that you're cooking. I hope this helps all of y'all. It's definitely a fun technique. It's a fun process to work with, teaches some basic skills, and cooking with butter always makes everything taste better. I want to take a moment to thank everyone for listening and continuing to enjoy the podcast. Also, if you're really enjoying it and want to help keep it alive, it would be great of you to consider becoming a patron by offering a small monthly donation to pay our bills. In addition to my undying gratitude, you score some nice exclusives available only to patrons. There is a list of patron rewards on our host page at patron.podbean.com slash homegastronomics. Of course, I've also got a ton of fun ideas that I might be able to make happen when we have some patrons to enjoy it all. Check it out and show your love for what we're doing. All right. Our question is not really a question this time. Haven't had one sent in for me to answer, but I've had a couple of conversations over the past couple of weeks with uh, people that I work for, people that I work with, and people that work for me as to recipes and how important recipes are and what I think of recipes. And I'm going to lay it straight out. I wanted to bring it here and share this information with you guys. Recipes 
are what separate home cooks from what we're going to call home chefs. What I mean by that is once you can be creative and create your own dish, you don't need a recipe. There's one exception, and that's in baking. Whether you're baking breads, cakes, muffins, biscuits, whichever it is that you're baking. Those recipes are so important that some bakers don't even call them recipes. They call them formulas. And it's real important to touch on that because if you change one little thing that you add two ounces too much of a fat or too much baking powder or whatever it is, you make some small change to that formula or that recipe when you're baking, it can make massive differences in the quality of the product that comes out. So with baking, recipes or formulas are very, very important. You really don't want to play around with those unless you know precisely what effect what you're doing is going to have. But on the flip side of things, in what we call the savory world or the culinary world, or just regular food, recipes are a tool that we use in restaurants to control cost and to control consistent quality. Obviously, if you come to my restaurant, I want you to have the same experience that you had the last time you were in my restaurant. If you come in and order jambalaya, I don't want it to be more spicy the next time that you come in or, you know, have not enough shrimp in it or or whatever the case may be. I want you to experience the same thing that you loved last time, not come to experience the same thing and it's different and now you're not happy. So that's what recipes are to me and in my opinion. Obviously. In my restaurant, I want everyone that works for me to follow recipes. That's why we give them recipes. Like I said, it's going to help control our cost. We know how much it costs to make this recipe. If all of a sudden our food cost is going through the roof, then I know that somebody's not following the recipes because I know what my food cost should be because I costed out a recipe. The same thing with the consistency and the quality. If someone's making a sauce and the sauce doesn't come out right and it's not what we want, then they're not following the recipe. We want that experience to be uniform across, not that the person sitting next to you is getting something different. Or like I said, you're getting something completely different the next time that you visit us. In home, it's, I want you to be creative. I want you to change things up. Develop your palate so that you know what flavors are and how flavors blend together. 
And then a recipe is not a Bible that you have to follow. A recipe is something that can give you ideas. You look up in your favorite cookbook, and I do this all the time. I have a number of cookbooks on my bookshelf that I'll look up, oh, I want a recipe for a type of chicken, a bourbon chicken. So I look up a bourbon chicken recipe and go, you know, I like that, but I want I want to change something else. I want a little bit different flavor. So I change something about that recipe to get something different that's really enjoyable. And then I'm not following that recipe. I'm using it to give me some ideas. And that's what we do in the restaurant when we're developing. When we're developing dishes to go out for our guests, we're not taking a recipe and saying, well, here's the recipe. We have to develop that recipe. So we're being creative. We're kind of throwing things together and everything else to develop that recipe. And once we get the flavor that we want and the presentation that we want, now we can turn around and write the recipe for our cooks to follow so that we get that consistent cost, consistent quality, and consistent presentation. At home, again, the whole goal is to be that home chef. Home chef with a developed palate, with a a creative mind that you can come up with your own food, not have to follow what somebody else likes if that's not something you like at all. So I hope that helps you a little bit. I could also recommend there's a couple books. One of my favorites, it's sitting right next to me right now. It's called The Flavor Bible. And that, whenever I'm developing a recipe, whenever I'm trying to cook something, I might look at a recipe and say, okay, this gives me an idea, but I want to change it. And I'll check in this book. It's a great resource. It tells you what flavors go well together and how they go well together on different levels and different seasons and things like that. Because that's something else you want to think about is seasonality. You know, if a flavor that you make in the spring, a dish that you make in the spring, all of a sudden some of the ingredients aren't available in the fall or in the winter, but you really want this particular dish. Say it's a rack of lamb. You and you love the rack of lamb, but it doesn't go well. Nice light dish doesn't go well in the winter when it's cold outside and you want something hearty. So you can adjust that and still do a rack of lamb, but have it in something that's going to be better suited for the season and the weather outside, especially when it comes to vegetables and things like that. So enjoy cooking, be creative, and thanks for listening. That's all I've got right now, folks. Remember, our website and blog at www.homegastronomics.com. Check it out. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Home Gastronomics or on Twitter at The Chef Chewy. 
like us, or drop us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and even YouTube. Our channel on YouTube isn't titled yet. Follow us there to help that happen. Until then, just search Home Gastronomics on YouTube. We talked about how awesome it is to consider becoming a patron and the support that gives us. Also, be sure to tell all of your friends about this cool podcast. You can always send us a message with questions or topic ideas. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.